You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Carissa Etienne, Director of the Pan American Health Organization, PAHO. Welcome, Carissa. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you today as well. And we're joined today also by my colleague and friend, Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow at the CSIS Global Health Policy Center and very well-known expert on Latin America and health, including PAHO. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to turn things over to you to get us started. Right. Well, thank you very much, Steve. Uh, it's really a pleasure to introduce Carissa Etienne, Director of the Pan American Sanitary Bureau, a position she has held for nearly eight years since being elected to it by the member states of the Pan American Health Organization, or PAHO. A medical doctor from Dominica, Dr. Etienne has worked at the national and global levels on just about every topic you can think of. HIV AIDS, health financing, universal health coverage, and environmental health. Our topic today, the COVID-19 pandemic in the Americas. Dr. Carissa Etienne, I want to welcome you to the podcast. I know we've had the pleasure of hosting you at CSIS previously for discussions on pandemic preparedness and the cholera outbreak in Haiti, to name a few. And I recall that we both joined a panel one cold, snowy day to speak to the Permanent Council of the Organization of American States about international collaborations to respond to the outbreak of avian and pandemic influenza in Asia. So this would have been about 2005 or so. And at that meeting, several ambassadors spoke up and really expressed hope that the long history of regional collaboration on health in the Americas, you know, would really help the countries of the region stand out and demonstrate global leadership if avian influenza did make it to the hemisphere. So I want to start by looking back a little bit. PAHO, the organization you lead, is more than 100 years old and really got its start in regional recognition that sovereign states had to work together on things like port sanitation and immigration to prevent cholera and yellow fever outbreaks in particular. That spirit of Pan-Americanism, solidarity, and cooperation has led to so many firsts for the region. The elimination of polio and rubella, the elimination of congenital syphilis in several countries, and the revolving fund for vaccines with its model of pooled procurement has been an inspiration for other regions working towards expanding access to immunizations. And there is so much scientific expertise and R&D capacity in the region. So I wanted to ask you first to talk about some of PAHO's recent successes in the region. In Venezuela, for example, a measles outbreak threatened to spill across borders and affect populations in Colombia, Guyana, and Brazil. PAHO experts deployed rapidly to provide technical assistance to respond to the outbreak and help restore immunization services. And so I'd I'd ask you to talk about how the spirit of regional cooperation supported that work and how did the response play out? Thank you, Catherine, and thanks for the introduction. Yes, as you know, PAHO was founded in 1902, and we were founded during the presidency of President Roosevelt. And our member states at that time needed an organization that would help to address infectious disease outbreaks that were challenging both for trade and economic development. It was rooted in solidarity. 
And we have seen this solidarity persisting over this 118 years. As newer independent countries have joined PAHO, we now have some 38 member states registered and in all 52 member states and associated states. So we have seen based on the work of the Secretariat and also the solidarity in our member states, the Americas has been the first region in the world to eradicate many once dreaded diseases, as you've noted. Smallpox in 1971, polio in 1994, rubella and congenital rubella syndrome in 2015, measles in 2016, and we have paved the way for similar efforts at a global level. Apart from that, we've done major reductions in TB incidents before COVID. And it meant that Latin America was no longer a major contributor to TB cases in the United States and other countries. We've seen dramatic declines in malaria cases pre-COVID, of course, and HIV AIDS in terms of effective prevention and treatment. And we've been able to help countries improve their capacity to detect, contain, and halt the spread of infectious outbreak diseases. In 2018-2019, we had a situation in Venezuela where we were seeing economic declines, where um, the health systems had virtually collapsed, and we were having a major measles and diphtheria outbreak that was seeding cases to the rest of the region. And of course, yes, we mobilized with other governments and agencies and mounted an immunization response where we were able to immunize more than 9 million children against measles and stop the epidemic in Venezuela, and of course, to prevent the spread to neighboring countries. We have done that with rabies. Even during the pandemic, we were able to immunize hundreds and thousands of dogs in Haiti to stop the spread of dog-induced rabies. But we have worked also in other epidemics, like in Zika. You will recall the epidemic of Zika in Brazil, but many other countries, we were able to work with countries to address that epidemic. And we have worked with all of our member states to build stronger health systems, whereby we have brought access to healthcare services since 2000 to more than 125 million people. And we continue to build on these achievements because we are now having an initiative for the elimination of over 30 infectious diseases and conditions in the region. And we have only been able to achieve those through the commitment of governments, their solidarity, and really the hard work and commitment of the staff of the Secretariat. So I want to turn to that question of health equity in the region for a second, you know, which has been such an important element of, of work in recent years. You know, PAHO has long recognized that even as the countries in the region, many of which you know, are reaching middle-income country status and transitioning away from different kinds of foreign assistance, there's an important equity agenda that, that can't be overlooked. And some of this really became evident in the Zika outbreak that you mentioned, you know, in 2015, 2016, when it was really the poorest families who were less able to protect themselves from mosquitoes in some cases, and in which women were more likely to give birth to children with microcephaly and other congenital disorders. As of this recording, there have been at least 28.4 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the region, and four of the 10 countries with the highest number of confirmed cases are in the Americas. 
the United States, which has the majority of those cases, but also Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, with Mexico and Peru not too far behind. And the U.S., Brazil, and Mexico are among the top 10 for deaths, with Argentina, Colombia, and Peru in the top 15. So these are, are not necessarily the firsts or top 10s that, that a country wants to be associated with. I wanted to ask you to explain you know, what you see driving the severity of the pandemic in the region and why it seems to be so much worse in the Americas than other parts of the world and, and if there's an element of the inequalities around health that are playing a role here. So thank you, Catherine. Of course, when we refer to the Americas, that is not a homogenous population. Um, the Americas represent a diverse group of countries with great geographic diversity, different socioeconomic, cultural, social, and economic conditions, and the levels of development as well. We see population and age structure differences, and of course, important differences in ethnicity. So Yes, there have been large numbers of confirmed cases reported in the region, but it may not be necessarily true that the Americas have the highest rate of infections. I, I think the original picture that we see represents a mosaic of outbreaks and recovery, both within countries and between countries. So you've noted the, um, the numbers of cases and reported deaths as of yesterday, but we are seeing case numbers declining in Peru and Argentina. I think there are a number of factors contributing to this large number of reported cases in the Americas. First of all, we have large populations in the region that totals close to 1 billion people. Um, the United States has the third largest population in the world. And of course, the population in Brazil and other countries. If you have a larger population, the um, chances are you're going to have a larger number of, of cases. We also had early access to testing and decentralization of testing. In February, 2020, before the end of February, PAHO had already purchased and distributed to countries antigen tests from the La Charité. We had trained lab workers and they were prepared to do testing. And we saw after some time, the decentralization of these testing capacities. You referred to the high levels of inequity and poverty, and that is indeed a major factor. And this inequity and poverty is occurring without adequate or robust social protection systems. There are large numbers of vulnerable populations. Example, the indigenous, first, indigenous population who are 10 times more likely to contract COVID-19. The Afro-descendant populations, migrants and refugees, and the peri-urban slum dwellers. There are high levels of informality in the economy with no employment protection or health insurance. Some 30 to 70% of the population, and it varies by countries, belong to the informal sector. And, and women are overrepresented in that informal sector. In this group, there is limited access to the social and environmental determinants of health. Example, adequate housing, access to water and sanitation, access to food, et cetera. So consequently, they are less able to follow the public health measures like staying at home, hand washing and social distancing. And, and so obviously that makes them much more vulnerable to being infected with the virus. Also in Latin America and the Caribbean, we have seen years of inadequate public investments in health. 
Our public investments in health average out some 3.7%, which is far less than the 6% that had been envisaged. And this has led to weak health systems with poorly developed first levels of care and the essential public health functions. One third of all healthcare costs in Latin America and the Caribbean are out of pockets. And these costs are borne by householders. And that leads to catastrophic health expenditure for some 95 million annually. And, and it pushes 12 million into poverty. So therefore, even prior to the pandemic, access to health services and health coverage was weak. We saw inadequate numbers of well-trained healthcare workers. And, and with austerity measures, many member states had also begun reducing their healthcare workers' um, force. And that is very true in Ecuador. In the austerity measures in Ecuador, many healthcare workers were let off. And so they did not have the capacity to respond to the um, pandemic. And of course, the internal movement of the population, there is much movement of that population. And particularly in the Caribbean, we saw cases rise with the reopening of the borders to international travel. But that is true of almost all of our countries as well. I think that the pandemic took advantage of all of these weaknesses, all of these structural deficiencies that existed and basically laid them bare. Thank you. Last week on December 1st, we hosted a UN Undersecretary General, Mark Lowcock, head of the Office of Humanitarian Cooperation Coordination for the launch of the annual Global Humanitarian Overview. And, uh, and so it covered the planet, but it was a very striking, is a very dramatic sort of picture that he drew of the speed and scale of these cascading crises that COVID is inspiring across the world. The humanitarian demand rose from 29 billion at the beginning of 2020 to 39 billion by the end of the year. There was a gap of 22 billion, is the same level of request from 2017. Now they're projecting a 40% further increase in demand. And we're seeing cascading impacts in terms of famine, disrupted immunization, poverty accelerating, a doubling of the deaths of HIV, TB, malaria, the weakest populations and most marginalized, particularly women and girls being particularly subject to more abuse, uh, violence, sexual violence, and the like. The picture that he drew also is of there have been improvements in programmatic responses, and I'm sure you can talk about those, but there is this dangerous gap until we get to a point of stabilization, perhaps downstream in terms of the vaccines. And we'll talk a bit more about the vaccines later. But my question for you is, in when you look at Latin America, over 40 million have now been thrust into poverty uh, as a result of COVID. We see a severe debt crisis and a threat of fiscal insolvency, worsening food insecurity, and really severe stress on health systems. And a fear that the many gains the region has achieved may be wiped out. There may be a reversal. And you've been a leader globally on equity issues. You've been a leader on primary health care and community or mobilization and around integration of services and primary essential services and the like. Is this a moment in time to go back to those issues around the centrality of primary health care? 
Thank you for this question. Really, from the early outset of the pandemic, we had advised our countries that we were facing a triple crisis. Actually, some people say it's more than triple, it's quadruple. A crisis in health, a crisis in the economy, a crisis in social protection, and many have added political crisis. So I mentioned previously the impact of the pandemic on health and well-being in the Americas. But we are also witnessing excess in mortality in some of our, our priority countries. There have been significant reductions in vaccination coverage throughout our region, reduced access to diagnostic and treatment services for communicable diseases like HIV, TB, and malaria. We've seen important delays in the care, treatment, and management of non-communicable diseases. We've seen reduction in prenatal and antenatal care and for deliveries as well. So this negative impact of COVID-19 on the access and provision of essential health services is resulting in excess mortality. And I, I wish to refer to um, a piece of work that we've done with ECLAC and the Caribbean, um, where we have reported the very um, figures that you've been mentioning, the 9% um, shrinkage in the economies of Latin America and the Caribbean, the pushing of some 45 million more people below the poverty line, and nearly 10 years of loss gains in health. And we have been working closely across sectors in our countries to advise them that health and the economic sectors must work together to implement and adjust measures relating to the relaxation and implementation of public health measures. You will recall that earlier in the epidemic, there was all this conflict between the economy and health. And, and we have tried to be clear in our messaging that we can't reopen the economy without addressing the pandemic. But we need to do that through data-driven decision-making, through surveillance, through testing, contact tracing, and health services readiness. And we have published guidance, and we are working with countries on strengthening their health services, not just to respond to COVID-19, and I think this is very important, but in the provision of essential health services that will address increasing levels of non-COVID mortality and morbidity. And, and we are urging countries to continue to take this opportunity to transform and strengthen their health systems based on the primary healthcare approach so that they could continue to mitigate against the impact of the pandemic and the economic downturn, that they would at the same time advance towards universal health coverage and, and universal health access. And, and it can help them build resiliency for the future international public health measures. So. Yes, as we have stressed, primary health care is an important strategy as we address this pandemic, but as we move into the future, as we build on resiliency for the health and well-being of all persons. Thank you. I want to ask you a question, a political question, which may be more sensitive for you, but we know that governance and leadership is very important in understanding what the outcomes are for the response to COVID. We also know that COVID itself can have an impact on governance, that where it is particularly virulent and out of control, we can see some impacts that are disturbing in that respect. We also know, we've seen in our own country here, that we can have a terrible set of outcomes of COVID-19 and we can have the 
the incumbent president received 70 million votes in the national elections. And not unlike what we've seen as continued high popularity of President Bolsonaro in Brazil, for instance. I mean, it's it's a funny set of things happening. How do you see the political impact, the governance impact in places like Brazil, Haiti, Argentina, Mexico? These are four countries that particularly important in thinking about this issue. I know this is a sensitive matter, but I wanted to ask you nonetheless. So <laughs> thank you for this question. Nonetheless, I think the whole emphasis on good governance has been a recurring message from PAHO for many years. So we have continued to urge countries to embark upon health systems reform, to strengthen national leadership to achieve the overarching goals of, that was set out in SDGs. We have also insisted on the need to establish the necessary governance mechanisms that ensure the translation of policy into action, because there is this gap, this action gap. And we've encouraged them um, to utilize legislative action, regulation, and effective social participation in health. I believe that the pandemic has really placed a spotlight on the issue of governance in health, on its importance in building national and local responses that are science-based, that are inclusive, that are well-structured and organized. And it has shown us that we really need to strengthen the oversight and implementation of the essential public health functions. What is true though, that in countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, the head of state took responsibility in many countries for leading the response, for ensuring necessary finances, the release and repurposing of resources, to ensure an all government approach and to the advocacy and representation at high level global fora and the high level of communication with the population. Emergency provisions have been implemented in many countries by the executive branch in government to rapidly scale up systems response. We've seen regulatory actions um, taken in key areas of emergency use authorization of technologies. We've seen improvement in intersectoral uh, action um, coordinated from, by the highest levels of government. All these, and I think many more examples of how leadership and governance is key to the health and well-being of the population, but not just in times of pandemic, but also in, in normal times. I want to add too, though, that the pandemic exacerbated and triggered civil political agitation, greater demands, and led to crisis, political crisis in many countries. And, and this set the stage for a variety of actions for enhanced government discourse and engagement with civil society and the masses, not a bad outcome. So we expect that governance will remain a priority as we come out of the pandemic and that senior levels of government will continue to engage and lead in health and development as not only as the recovery proceeds, but as we continue to build resilient health systems and, and, and society. So, so we hope that we have captured the attention of the highest level of government as to the importance of health to economic and social development. Thank you. Thank you very much. Catherine? 
Thanks. So I want to shift from a focus on regional governance issues to kind of the global environment. And as we envision a solution or a, a way, you know, beyond the pandemic, many people have focused on, on vaccines on the horizon. So I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about the COVAX facility. Now, a lot of countries in the region have joined the facility, either as self-financing countries or as part of the advanced market commitment. And then the PAHO Revolving Fund also plays a role in procuring and distributing vaccines at low cost to countries throughout the region. And so I wanted to ask first, you know, how you see countries in the region engaging with the COVAX facility. And second, if you could say something about how the revolving fund will be interacting with the facility for the benefit of the region. So let's talk a little about the PAHO Revolving Fund for Vaccines that was established some 40 years ago by member states as part of a comprehensive technical cooperation package to, with the objective of increasing immunization coverages and stopping the transmission and eliminating vaccine preventable diseases. So PAHO's Revolving Fund for Access to Vaccine has been supporting to date some 42 member states and territories in the Latin America and Caribbean region to pool their demands and to access high quality vaccines at affordable prices. The revolving fund as we refer to it will be an important platform for Latin American countries to access COVID-19 vaccines through the COVAX facility. And we are considered PAHO and its member states as a regional block with the revolving fund as one of the major procurement channels for the COVAX facility along with UNICEF. UNICEF does not purchase vaccines in the Americas. It is the revolving fund that does it. So out of 42 countries and territories which have an already existing procurement arrangement with the PAHO revolving fund, 10 of them are eligible for the COVAX AMC support and, and others are considered as self-financing. So we have been working closely with all self-financing and COVAX AMC eligible countries in the region. And we've been working with the Gavi Secretariat to ensure that the best possible engagement for all parties. Over the past few months, the countries in our region have worked to meet the milestones to allow them to um, comply with the requirements for COVAX eligibility. And we've been working with them. As of today, there are 27 self-financing countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and Canada has signed also official commitment ag agreements to join the COVAX facility. So if we looked at in terms of population ratio, these 27 countries constitute around 98% of the total population living in 32 countries that have been targeted as self-financing countries in Latin America and Caribbean. So I'm happy to confirm that the majority of our member states working with the PAHO Revolving Fund are showing an unprecedented level of participation with the COVAX facility. And in the coming months, we will be working closely with both Gavi and other COVAX partners to facilitate the application process for the 10 COVAX AMC eligible countries in our region. In parallel, we are also working in close collaboration with UNICEF, as PAHO is a core lead in the preparation of a procurement strategy for the COVAX facility. A joint UNICEF-PAHO tender for the COVAX facility is currently underway. 
And PAHO is also working with member states to, in order to prepare them for the receipt and distribution of the vaccines. We have established a task force for COVID-19 vaccination in the Americas with the purpose of responding to country needs, providing the strategic, technical, and operational guidance for the successful planning and implementation of COVID-19 in the Americas. And we believe that with that, we should be able to meet the demands for the priority groups of each population. Are you afraid that there are going to be significant gaps among countries in the next two years in terms of affordable access to safe and effective vaccines? Do you see a risk right now that we're going to be fragmenting into a world of countries that have the capacity to purchase safe and effective quickly and those that do not and who are left in a certain cloud of uncertainty, forced to delay? Are you fearful of that? Do you see that as a real threat and possibility in the region? Yes, I am. (laughs) Yes, I am. And that's why I believe that the COVAS mechanism is such an important mechanism that is based on solidarity and guarantees access to a vaccine for some 20% or so of the country populations. So these doses should allow countries to cover priority groups based on policy recommendations and, and their own context. And we believe that initial, the initial volumes would suffice to cover the most critical groups while vaccine production reaches scale to ensure broader access. We believe that the highly developed countries should participate in the COVAX facility. We've seen Canada signing up, the European Union, etc., signing up, because it is through this solidarity that at least the most critical groups in our countries will have access to vaccines. But yes, member states and particularly highly developed countries have their own uh, individual agreements with um, vaccine producers that places them at a higher priority than other countries. So our, our work and the work with WHO and the other members of the COVAX is to ensure that most member states, uh, 182 member states are are now signed up to COVAX, that they will have some access to a certain level of vaccine for the uh, most critical population. May I ask you one other follow-on question to that, which is a a question around the entry into the region of China and Russia, uh, where we have agreements, we have claims made that there are vaccines that are safe and effective. The data may be missing on phase three trials. You may be awaiting it, but there's been an aggressive diplomacy to begin doing trials in a number of countries within the region, but also to begin negotiating in a diplomatic manner around access to dosages and the level and, and the like. What do you make of all of this, seeing suddenly the entry of China and Russia into the region in a dramatic way. We also have many of the Western developers, AstraZeneca and some of the other major developers also out doing their trials and the like. First of all, our member states are sovereign countries and they can establish relationships with any other um, entity, whether it is bilateral or multilateral. We are working with our regulatory authorities in countries to ensure that they have 
the necessary training and capacity to allow them to make decisions as to entry of vaccines into their countries. Of course, this is also a political decision. WHO, we will support WHO in this, will also ensure that they would do the assessments in terms of quality and efficacy of the various vaccines. This may take much longer than um, member states are able to concur with having those vaccines. This is highly political. PAHO is working with our governments to help them to understand that vaccines need to meet a certain standard. And that standard has to be based on sufficient data, on sufficient testing, and on efficacy, physical efficacy trials um, to ensure that vaccines are up to standard. Thank you. Catherine? So I wanted to switch to the topic of vaccine research and, and development in the region itself. I know, you know, Brazil has long produced vaccines for distribution through the region, and there have been uh, other programs that, you know, have come and gone in, in other countries over the years. But, you know, I wanted to ask if the current research is stimulating new research partnerships and innovation around vaccines in the region and, you know, with many countries participating in clinical trials with perhaps with the hope both of securing doses and also igniting or reigniting some immunization research, you know, just if you could say a bit about the state of COVID vaccine research in the region and and where you see the potential for collaborations into the future. Certainly several countries in the region are currently engaged in in multicentric clinical trials for the COVID vaccine development, and they are working directly with the developers of vaccines. In addition, PAHO is supporting some countries like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Chile, Mexico, and El Salvador in, in their participation in the WHO vaccine solidarity trials. These initiatives are just part of the international effort to scale up phase three trials in the areas with the high levels of community transmission, and thus where vaccine effectiveness should be more readily assessed. I did mention that we are working with our national regulatory authorities. We have met with these authorities some 16 times, and we are providing direct support for those national regulatory authorities as well. And so we hope that through this, and we do know that some member states are participating in trials in certain aspects of the vaccine development in exchange for access to vaccines. But this has not prevented our member states from joining with COVAX. I have a distinct preoccupation that our region is not sufficient in the research for their own development of the essential health technology that they need, which includes vaccine. I I believe that um, not only Brazil, but several other countries in the region should begin to explore possibilities for partnerships with private sector, with um, industry, to ensure that in this region, we can develop, we can begin to produce these essential health technologies. And we will have a meeting with governments, with the industry, with associations today, ECLAC and PAHO, addressing just this, 
how can we stimulate? What can be done to stimulate that, that level of research and production as far as essential health technologies, not just vaccines, but medicines and supplies? I'd like to shift to the question, which has to do with PAHO's value proposition to citizens of the United States. We know this, we've gone through a period under the Trump administration of anti-multilateralism, of disengagement from alliances, of severing the relationship with WHO. Fortunately, PAHO is under a different legal instrument and has not been harmed in the same way that WHO has been. We're now entering a period of the surge globally in the Northern Hemisphere. We're seeing this very dangerous surge. We're seeing the introduction of vaccines. We've talked about that. We're seeing a political transition to a Biden presidency, a Biden administration, where there's a pledge to return to membership in WHO. There's a pledge to re-embrace multilateralism and alliances, partnerships, operating with others. This may be a little difficult to do because of the crises, but also because a very large portion of the American population seems to still be somewhat hostile to multilateralism and to U.S. foreign policy engagement and these partnerships and the like. There's so much that does go on between PAHO and the United States to mutual benefit. We've talked about this, the span over the decades and the ongoing continuous work. It's our United States interest, health security interest, health status is deeply interdependent with the success and the vitality and the professional impacts of PAHO and the other partner countries and the like. What is your thinking about how to bring across the value proposition of PAHO to the average American in a slightly better way? Because I think that's going to be one of the challenges that the Biden administration, in re-engaging with WHO, in trying to make the case, we're still going to have a large part of our population that is not going to be very receptive to that idea. And we have to figure out how to do it better, you know, how to bring those folks along. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on this. Not an easy question, I know, but I know it's something you think about. You speak to all people. You're not a partisan person. No, I'm not. (laughs) So actually, we have been um, contemplating and discussing this for several years in PAHO. How do we make PAHO a household name in the United States of America? And how do we begin to engage with the U.S. population in understanding the mutual benefit of PAHO for the United States, but also how the United States works with other countries to support health and well-being in the Americas. And we've had, I mean, a very long history. I will tell you that I think that we have to find new ways of communicating this. And we have started a weekly briefing particularly around COVID-19, but also we need to find ways. First of all, one of the publics that we need to engage is the people on the Hill. So they to understand this relationship of PAHO and the United States and how PAHO can be beneficial for the health and security of the U.S. And so we've ramped up this communication, but we need to get to the rank and file of the U.S. population. Because it is a long and a very successful history. We've had 40 years of working on health emergencies and disasters. We have been able to stop infectious diseases from reaching the United States of America. We have been able 
to be there in health emergencies within 48 hours in most of the health emergencies. We have had 25 years of working on communicable diseases, 25 years of raising immunization coverages within the Americas and thus stopping the transmission of many of those vaccine preventable diseases. We've worked on maternal and child health, on non-communicable diseases, We've worked on health systems challenges, including health information systems. And if I may just mention a few of the most successful partnerships, we've worked with the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. That spans several decades, and, and it has been instrumental advancing public health goals in Latin America and the Caribbean, improving access to quality health services. Our Emergency preparedness and disaster response work was created in 1976. It catalyzed the birth of the Caribbean Disaster Response Agency, now renamed as SIDEMA, which has taken on a lot of the responsibility in the Caribbean for response to disasters. We've together developed the Caribbean wind hazards map, the consolidation of the regional health response team, and many more. The U.S. Office for Foreign Diseases, OFTA. This has continuously provided multi-year programmatic support to implement our strategic plans for emergency preparedness and disaster. And we have been the organization through which many response agencies of the United States have come to countries to provide um, emergency support. We through US support, we have been able to maintain a regional humanitarian warehouse in Panama. And that's where we had much of the supplies that were needed for COVID-19 came out of that warehouse so that we were able to pre-position a lot of those prior to the pandemic hitting our member states. The Zika epidemic and the work that was done to respond to Hurricane Matthew, Maria, and Irma, Hurricane Dorian. The work that we've done with PAHO USAID in several agreements, what we call umbrella agreements. We've worked with the President's Malaria Initiative, and we have reduced the level of malaria that is imported into the United States of America. We have worked to improve outcomes in TB, in malaria, in neglected infectious diseases, in maternal, neonatal child health and adolescent health. I think one of our really flagship programs has been immunization. And we worked with CDC as well, the United States Centers for um, Disease Control and Prevention. And we have been able to strengthen surveillance and laboratory capacity. And those are very important to detect emerging and re-emerging pathogens in the region so that together we can stop them at the source so they are not therefore imported into the United States of America. And so HIV AIDS, we have worked to strengthen the influenza networks, the regional influenza networks. And this has expanded now, both at the regional and global level. And so with the US, we have been able to strengthen and to initiate many, many programs in this region that is contributing to improving life and well-being, not merely for citizens of Latin America and the Caribbean, but also for United States citizens. 
That's very refreshing to hear that. We ask all of our guests who come on this podcast to close on a positive note. We ask you to tell us amidst all of these challenges that you face, and you've been really generous and incredibly lucid in going across the entire landscape and explaining these many different things that PAHO is shaping. And it's difficult agenda. It's a difficult time. We know it's a really difficult time. We've talked about that. You've been very candid. So what gives you the greatest hope and the greatest optimism now? I know you're an optimist. <laughs> it's very clear you're an optimist. What gives you that strength when you get up in the morning to tackle these problems? So yes, I am naturally an optimist. And so yes, I am hopeful for a brighter future for really a number of reasons. I think first, because of what we have witnessed in terms of the response of countries, of health services, and most of all, our health and essential workers on the front line. I believe that their unwavering commitment to public service, to saving lives, while placing their own lives at risk, has moved me personally. And it is inspiration and should be an inspiration for us all. I, I believe with people like this working in our communities, that we can be optimistic for the future of health and well-being in the Americas. I, I think also, secondly, that because of the enormous work that has been done by academia, the private sector, governments, and the international community, which has resulted in a massive mobilization of our science and technological base to produce really in record time diagnostic tools and of course the um, COVID-19 vaccines. I believe that this is cause for optimism. The level of solidarity that we have seen within the industry and between countries on equitable access to vaccines, but also to supplies for COVID-19 has lifted my spirit as well. And finally, and I think most importantly, I see a future where we are realizing that the health and well-being of people is our most precious resource and must be prioritized in the new dispensation post-COVID-19. I am optimistic, despite all the hardships and economic turmoil that we have seen, that countries will recognize that we need new approaches to development that prioritize people, particularly the poor and vulnerable, and elevates health and human security as a national priority, and that they will take the necessary measures to build resilience, to invest in health, to invest in social protection and in health systems. This has been the work of my life, and I can't help but be optimistic about it. Thank you so much, Dr. Etienne. This has been rich and inspiring. On behalf of both Catherine and myself, I just want to thank you for your leadership, for your commitment, for your you know, boundless humanity and compassion, and the vision that you bring to PAHO. We're very, very fortunate to have you in this role. In your second term, where you can really have deep impact in a second term leading this institution. So we wish you the best. We're grateful that you took the time out of your busy, busy day to share these many thoughts with us. And we hope we can come back to you again at another point in 2021 and see where things are. Thank you for this opportunity. I believe they will be better than today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.